All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your written word breathed out by you through the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament, guaranteed in its accuracy and inerrancy and infallible because it represents your very thinking. It is to guide and direct us. It is to inform us of who we are and who you are and to teach us how you have solved our problem of sin and spiritual death through the death of Christ on the cross, and how you have redeemed us that we might have new life in him, and that we can learn to walk closely with him in this life to reflect your essence, to reflect your glory to those around us. Now, Father, as we study today, as we prepare to get into the uh, epistle to the Ephesians, we pray that you can help us to understand what is going on in this culture, these believers to whom Paul is writing, and especially to recognize they're not some special group, that in fact, in many ways, they're very much like us, and that we may understand that and that God the Holy Spirit would challenge us to apply the things that we learn regularly to think more about you and to live more consistently for you. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Now, this is our third part in an introduction to the epistle to the Ephesians. It's background in understanding who these people are and to understand the significance of this this epistle. It is an epistle that emphasizes the wealth of every one of us as believers. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1, the riches of Christ are ours. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. The Ephesian believers needed to be reminded of that because they lived in an environment that at times could be hostile to them, not unlike the culture in which we live, because the hostility to Christianity uh, seems to get a little more palpable each, each year. And so once we understand the wealth that we have in Christ, the first three chapters of Ephesians, then we are to live our lives a certain way. The metaphor for that in Scripture is the word walk. How we walk is how we live, how we conduct our lives together. The point that I'm making in this introduction is that we're not much different 
from the Ephesians. Uh, they had some little bit different challenges here or there, but we too face similar challenges. We have to bring Christ in the Bible to a pagan culture. The difference is that we are post-Christian and they are pre-Christian. Thus, our culture has heard the gospel, has been saturated in many ways with biblical teaching, but our culture at this point is primarily rejecting the truth of Scripture. For many, they have heard a wrong or distorted message. They have reacted to legalism, and so they are reacting to a false message. For others, they have understood the message. Some may even be saved, but they have become the enemies of the cross because of their rejection of truth and because they wish to live out all of the desires of their sin nature. And then there are others who are not saved, and they are in full rejection of God and of Christ and of Christianity. They are in rebellion, and they follow the footsteps of the man we will read about this morning, Demetrius the silversmith, who leads this riot against the Christians, and they are antagonistic and hostile to Christianity, and they're stirring up the masses against the Christians. One example of this that has come to our attention over the last week, I showed a video of a newscast from Christian Broadcasting Network on Thursday night talking about this curriculum that is being uh, implemented throughout Canada. Canada is much more liberal than we are further down the road here, but they are uh, coming in and it's talking about how they are uh, teaching the entire LGBTQ philosophy in the public schools and in public libraries, even bringing uh, trans, various transgender people into these uh, settings to read stories about being transgender to the kids and basically uh, to uh, make the kids very comfortable with the idea that they are gender fluid and they can be whatever they want to be and they don't have to uh, uh, be the gender that they that's been determined physically and biologically. We think of this as sometimes as something that's happening somewhere else, but then a report came out in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram on Friday or Saturday about the same thing happening right here in Texas, in Fort Worth. That shouldn't be a surprise. It happened during the summer in Houston Public Libraries. And lest you get the idea, you ought to, if you haven't seen that report, you ought to go look at it. It's up there at the beginning of Thursday night's lesson. You ought to watch the part when I say transgenders coming in. I don't know what appears in your mind, but it's probably not the costumes that they are wearing that look very demonic. And this idea of, of transgender and cross-dressing and things like that wasn't unfamiliar to those who lived in Ephesus. And the fact that this is connected to uh, the demonic and to spiritual warfare was not something that they were unfamiliar with. This is why Paul spends time on that. We'll cover that a little bit later this morning, why Paul spends time on that. But we need to realize this is the battle. And we have a visitor here this morning who's down here from Oregon and a longtime friend and 
I was visiting with him after class on Thursday night, and he told me that they're just right in the center of this vortex now because his wife, having complained enough about the direction things were going, ran for school board in the town they live in in Oregon, not too far from Portland, and she got elected to the school board. And now she is organizing parents, and they are uh, pushing back. They are providing information to school boards, and to, I mean to the school administrators and to the teachers, and they are doing a number of things and educating people as to what the law actually is in terms of parental rights over what goes on at school and things like that. But it has just generated, you know, a maelstrom of hostility. And that's what happens when Christians are living for the truth in the midst of a culture that is hostile. Paul told the Philippians that we are to shine as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And that is going to, in a pagan culture, going to generate a lot of hostility. And that is what we see here in this part, this last part of Acts 19. Just to remind you, this is uh, where Ephesus is located. It is on the western coast of what is today modern Turkey. At the time of the first century, the early church, it was in the Roman province of Asia, which covered most of western Turkey. Paul went there briefly on his second missionary journey, and then after returning back to his home church in Antioch, this line here traces his... Um, Excuse me. In this map, this line here traces his third journey where he went after visiting churches he had already founded in Galatia. He went to Ephesus and had a three-year ministry there. Uh, Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at this time, so this is a major metropolitan area. And you had just about anything that you could think of going on in Ephesus. You had all uh, kinds of uh, religions. You had the different mystery religions were all present there. You had the. Uh, you also had those who followed various philosophers, just because the culture was no longer oriented to the rationalism of Plato or the empiricism of Aristotle doesn't mean there weren't still people who advocated that. In the same way here, we live in a postmodern world. We live in a postmodern culture that has rejected reason and logic as part of our uh, ability to understand truth. But that's not true for everybody. There are many who are unbelievers in this country who are not operating on a postmodern view of the world, they still operate on a modernist view. It, it's, it, it's a mix. There's a lot of different, different people. Last time I talked about the impact of the way we think about ultimate reality because this is important for understanding, understanding the thinking, both the Greek philosophical tradition that's going on and a background in this culture as well as the religious. This gives us the, the intellectual tools to analyze these things. There are four ways that we come to understand truth. As has been outlined and investigated through philosophy uh, and through intellectual thought for centuries going back to the ancient Greeks, so you have these systems. I'm going to, on the chart, the system is on the left, its starting point in the middle, and then the method on the right. 
You have rationalism. Pure rationalism starts just with thinking in the mind and works out its principles on the basis of logic. Logic is the means of getting at the truth. The starting point is human reason. But this is a faith in human reason. We have innate ideas according to rationalism, and we believe that we can properly apprehend or understand those ideas, and then our logic machine is good enough to get us to ultimate answers. The problem with it is it ends up in bankruptcy. It always has historically. There's a cycle that that civilizations go through on this. The second is empiricism. This is a philosophy of uh, rationalism was the philosophy of Plato in the ancient world, Descartes in the modern world. Empiricism was the uh, thinking of Aristotle in the ancient world, and then the empiricists like Berkeley and, and Locke and Hume in the uh, modern world. And it starts with sense perception, not ideas in the mind. The idea is the mind is an empty slate. And then through sense perceptions, through external experience, we can come to know truth. And really you have a combination of both that, that end up creating the scientific method. But it too is a faith in human ability to properly interpret the data. Okay, so both are grounded on faith perception. Again, in empiricism, you have, and I say the independent use of logic and reason because they don't start with the truth of Scripture. They start independently of any revelation. Rationalism and empiricism can't get to eternal answers. Man is finite. All he can come up with is a finite answer on his own. And so it always leads, when it breaks down, to skepticism. That's what happened in the ancient world among the Greeks, it also happened in the Far East. You had the same kind of patterns emerge where there is a breakdown uh, in relationship to logic. Logic is used both to build up and then to destroy. So the reaction then, once you get skepticism, is because people can't live as if there's no truth or no meaning. God has built something into the fabric of our image of God that we know at the very core of our being that there must be meaning. We can't live as if life is just without purpose and meaningless, and so we leap to some sort of now an irrational solution because reason has gone bankrupt, and so now we go to mysticism. Mysticism is some sort of inner private experience. I intuitively know what the truth is, but again, it's faith in human ability. And it, but it rejects the rational. It is ultimately irrational. Over against all of these is the biblical view of revelation that God gives us the starting point. God gives us information we need without which we cannot accurately understand uh, the world around us or the universe that he has created. So uh, revelation is objective. It's revealed to us, but we use logic and reason to understand it, but it's subordinate to the revelation. It's not independent. See, when you got into uh, 19th century religious liberalism and 20th century religious liberalism, they thought that reason got you the truth, and so they would tear down the Bible based on human reason. And that led to the development of what we know as, as religious liberalism. 
So this, this is a background. This is a great tool to understand things because at the time of Paul, they've gone through this shift. They're, they're influenced by mysticism, which shows up in one way because, as I looked at last time, these these exorcists, these Jewish exorcists and the magic, and they had this that we've uncovered through archaeology, all of these uh, magic, magical papyri instructions on how to do magic in um, in Ephesus and so that was very much a part of the culture this they were uh, they were imbued with this mystical magical occult demonic idea and that's why as i pointed out uh, last time as we saw when we got to verse 19 many of those who had accepted the gospel had practiced magic before that was still part of their life and once they realize that this is sinful, then they brought all of their occult books together and burned them all in the sight of many. And this had, uh, and this was worth a tremendous amount of money, uh, tens of thousands of dollars. And so we see that biblical truth will change lives, but will also have an economic impact. And that's what leads into the situation with the riot that occurs in the second half of the chapter. But let us not think that we are immune from this kind of thing. Yesterday, there was an article that was published in the Washington Examiner, and interesting headline, a large group of witches is meeting in Brooklyn this month to place a curse on Judge Brett Kavanaugh and, quote, upon all rapists and the patriarchy which emboldens, rewards, and protects them, unquote. Okay, this is a fascinating little article. Starts off uh, from the, quoting from their website: "We will be embracing witchcraft's true roots as the magic of the poor, the downtrodden, and the disenfranchised." So they're aligning themselves with social justice and with with socialism as uh, their their focal point here. And it says, as often the only weapon that we have, the only means of exacting justice available to those of us who've been wronged by men just like him. So to solve our problems, we have to go to witchcraft and the demonic. They clearly understand what they're doing is demonic. So according to this article, it's a sold-out event. It's going to be live-streamed on social media. And a quarter of the proceeds are going to be donated to uh, planned Parenthood and their abortion programs. I want to know where the other 75% is going, but it doesn't say. Dakota uh, Brachial, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, a, quote, queer, non-binary witch, unquote. That's how she defines herself. I still don't understand what non-binary is, but that's another issue. She is spearheading the event, and she told the Huffington Post that, Witches use hexes as a radical act of resistance against oppressors. Now, this is really interesting. She says, witchcraft has been used throughout history as a tool and ally for people on the fringes of society who will not ever really get justice through the powers that be, so they have to exact their own justice. Sounds like a vengeance motivation to me. And she goes on to say, that witchcraft can offer the means of exacting this justice that has been denied, so they give have hexes, which are, quote, not something you do lightly, unquote, she says, but it is something you have in your arsenal or toolbox. She says it's different from a binding spell, 
A hex is a more direct attack that engages its target in a supernatural fist fight. She says, um, in February of 2017, a group of witches sought to use black magic to subjugate U.S. President Donald Trump by casting a binding spell to prevent him from carrying out his campaign promises. How's that working for you? Yesterday, an article... An article in the Washington Examiner listed that a remarkable 249 achievements of the Trump administration in, in the last two years. So it doesn't seem to be very effective. It said, uh, goes on to say, the mass spell to bind Donald Trump was performed at midnight on February 24th, and the group pledged to repeat the spell on every waning crescent moon until Donald Trump is removed from office. She says... Um, Casting the spells entails a lengthy incantation calling on spirits and, quote, demons of the infernal realms, unquote, that's their language, to bind Trump so that, quote, he may fail utterly, that he may do no harm. See, this is what is being talked about here, this emphasis on uh, spiritual warfare, and that shows up a couple of times in Ephesus. So what we see... In this chapter in Acts 19 is that there's opposition from the intellectual rationalists and empiricists who reject a creator God. We also see opposition from the mystics and the demonic, and then opposition from polytheism, from the worship of the idols. Now, Ephesians 1, 20 to 23, in Paul's introduction, foreshadows the importance of understanding this spiritual warfare that we're in, that it's not just what we see, but there's also these invisible forces that's fully developed later in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. But in Ephesians 1, 20 to 23, he states, in which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So it's grounded in our understanding of his ascension and what Christ is doing for us now at the right hand of the Father. That he ascended far above, and now these terms all relate to demonic organization. He ascended above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. So this tells us that our position in Christ is such that we don't need to pay a lot of attention to what these uh, witches are doing or things like that because we're in Christ and Christ is superior to everything in, in the universe. That's what gives us a position of strength to be able to go in and face the demonic ideas that are being promoted in a pagan uh, in a pagan culture and in a pagan environment. The problem in the second part of, Ephes, of uh, Acts 19 is this problem of idolatry. And idolatry is focused on many, many times in the Old Testament. But I thought that since today we observed communion and at the Passover meal, the Jews would recite from the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 113 through 118, that I would show you a statement from Psalm 115, one of the Hallel Psalms, that they would have sung at the Passover meal 
during that time uh, of Jesus with his disciples. It begins, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Notice there's a rationale there. It's grounded on God's mercy, his faithful, loyal love, and it's grounded upon his truth on the word. So prayer needs to be grounded on what the word says. And then they ask the question, why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? This is the challenge from the pagans to the Jews, where's your God? It's the same challenge, essentially, that Paul and the other believers are facing uh, in the, from the opposition in Ephesus. And the answer is, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. In other words, he rules over all of these other gods and all of these other religions. It says they're idols. Now, this applies to this worship of Artemis, of the Ephesians, the great uh, temple to Artemis that was there in Ephesus that was about twice the size of the temple to uh, Aphrodite in, at the Parthenon and is a center for just tremendous, uh, tremendous wealth uh, in Ephesus. And people came there from everywhere. It was a major tourist destination and they bought, like we do, all kinds of trinkets. And so once you start getting a lot of believers in Ephesus, then that's going to break down because they're going to quit buying all of these little uh, amulets and good luck charms and all of these little idols. So what are these idols? Psalm 115.4, their, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts them. Gee, that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? God doesn't put up with false teachers, false teaching, idolaters, and false, false religions. We do not have to be... Uh, politically correct. This idea is echoed in, in Romans 1, 18 through 20 to remind us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's what's happening in those who reject the truth. That's what's happening with Demetrius and all of these that are going to riot in Ephesus, and that's what is happening in our own culture. They are suppressing the truth of God. They know God exists. It's evident on the outside from his creation and internally, but they reject it. They suppress it. Paul says, describes it this way. He says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. God has created something in because we're in the image of God that speaks to us that God exists. So no matter how great an atheist and skeptic they may be, what the scripture is saying is that they know God exists. Part of what we do in evangelism and with apologetics is to tweak that so that they have to face it. Sometimes that causes a reaction of anger. 
And then Paul says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What lies behind this is the doctrine of God as a creator. That's what distinguishes biblical Judeo-Christianity from all of the other world's religions. The starting point of Christian thought is that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and that all that is in them. And thus there is essentially both a rational understanding of the universe and there is also stability in the universe because God reigns. It goes on to say, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the process. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed or exchanged the glory of incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. So this is what has happened in the mythology that you have that is dominating the Greek world, the Roman world, much of the ancient Near East, and it develops into a polytheism or a worship of many different gods. Now, part of what we see here, and I'm going to skip forward a couple of slides, figure out how to make this work. There we go to Acts 19.20. Following the episode with the exorcist last time, I pointed out that the result was that the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. We see the power of grace. Now, that doesn't mean it always happened that way or always will happen that way, for there's a lot of opposition, a lot of things that have happened. But in Ephesus, it was their testimony and it was their trust in the Lord that was behind the growth and the power of Christianity that transformed that culture and eventually transformed the pagan culture of Western Europe into what it became much, much later. Now we're told about what happens. They have this Demetrius, who's a silversmith, and he is upset because uh, they've been making a lot of money. As silversmith, they, they made all of these little trinkets. They made these little idols of silver, of uh, Artemis of the Ephesians. She's often called the many-breasted goddess. She clearly had, there were clearly overtones of uh, fertility worship. Now, where that translates for us is prosperity worship. And so people would come and worship and give and buy these things, hoping that she would bless them and they would be prosperous. It's not any different from the materialistic philosophy that undergirds within Christianity, the prosperity gospel, and even just the pursuit of wealth for its own sake in the world around us. The great temple was located at here, as we see, and then as background, uh, the riot occurs in this huge amphitheater that is uh, depicted also here that just held an enormous number of people. So what happens is that Demetrius begins to uh, rouse up all of the people. Uh, there had been a tremendous impact of the gospel throughout all of Asia, uh, we're already told by, by um, Luke, and that 
it has been begun to transform the culture so that the people are no longer coming and spending their money on all of these little uh, trinkets and buying all of the little, uh, they would make things, little models of the temple, make models of Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians, and then, um, uh, and, and so this was a money-making operation. See, if they had only waited they, and, and been inventive, they could have started to make crosses, maybe some stars of David or something like that, and gotten ahead of the curve and kept their business going. But I'm just being facetious. So they're losing a tremendous amount of money. And as a result, they start. he starts to stir people up, and he tells them in verses uh, 25 and 26 and 27, Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple and the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And so, obviously, that has been destroyed. Here's the picture of where it was located because the gospel transformed that culture. So what happens then is there's this reaction, and they all cry out, and they begin to chant, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. That's the uh, King James. It's actually Artemis of the Ephesians. So the whole city's filled with confusion, and they rush into the theater. See, they're not thinking. They're just being stimulated by their emotion and their pocketbooks. And they they have no leader, no control, and they just grab a couple of men that were Paul's companions, and they are going to uh, do something to them. They've seized them, and they're going to punish them. Paul wanted to get involved, but he is restrained by a group of leaders in the city that he knew called Asiarchs. That's the term in the Greek, and we've actually got archaeological evidence that that was the uh, term that was used at that time. Then some of the officials or Asiarchs, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. That's the, sometimes the course of wisdom is not a head-on confrontation. Some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And so for two hours they just chant and they chant, and then since they can't distinguish one monotheist from another, the Jewish community is becoming upset because this could turn on them, and so they put forward one of their leaders, uh, Alexander. And Alexander is trying to make his defense, and he can't get anywhere. Uh, when they found out he was a Jew, they just started chanting uh, more and more loudly. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And finally, a city clerk comes out and quiets them down and begins, after they have run out of emotional gas, to talk to them and give them an alternative solution. And so he, what does he do? He says, we need to take him to court. And eventually he gets that through to them that if you really have a complaint and these, these men are truly robbing the temple and are blasphemers of the goddess as you claim, then 
you should go to the lawful assembly and have it taken care of there. And he was able to quell the riot and to dismiss the assembly. But the point that we need to take from this is that when we as 21st century American Christians are looking at Ephesus, we're going to see a lot of different things that that are brought out by Paul that sometimes when we look at Ephesians, we think of this, you know, it's super spe- spiritual and they were super special and we, we don't have an understanding that they're just folks like us. They're dealing with the same kind of garbage and evil in their culture, the same spiritual warfare. They're tempted by a lot of the same wrong ideas that tempt our people. For example, they had a problem with, and, and part of the idolatry, idolatrous worship there was the worship of Dionysius, who's the god of wine. And they would have these, he's also known as Bacchus, and they would have these bacchanals, they, these drunken parties. And that, the, mo, the, the method there, the idea there was that, that they would get drunk enough to where the spirit of the god would exchange with their spirit, and then they would start speaking in some sort of divine language that was an, uh, would exemplify their new spirituality. That's the background for understanding what Paul says when he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled by means of the spirit. That spirituality doesn't come by some kind of uh, unification with some uh, false god or idol, but it comes by walking by the spirit of God. And so much that is going on in in uh, Ephesians is grounded on helping people just like you, just like me, dealing with the same kind of problems. And Paul doesn't start off with what most Americans want today, and that is, well, just tell me, get to the bottom line, tell me how I should live. He has three chapters dealing with our riches in Christ, the blessings that God has given us, and the fact that we have to first understand that because that sets our mental framework so that we can then, after we've understood who we are in Christ, we now have a motivation and a foundation for walking and living a certain way. What we believe should have a direct impact on how we live. We saw that in Acts 19, and that's the focal point for uh, the epistle to the Ephesians. So we'll come back next week and start into the first verse of Ephesians with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we are thankful that we have this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that in this world, in the devil's world, we are indeed involved in a spiritual conflict, an angelic conflict, that we are not at war with necessarily the people who we face, but with something more insidious, and that is the demonic forces that are manipulating the scenario that are behind the scenes. Father, we need to understand what your word says about who we are in Christ and all that he has given us and all that you provided for us in grace that we may face a hostile environment, that we may live on the basis of grace and goodness and kindness toward others, not focusing on necessarily the evil that they do, but on giving them the gospel and the solution to the problem that we may fight it 
on the one hand, but show grace on the other hand. And that we may learn not only what we have in Christ, but how that should affect the way we live and the way we interact with the world around us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here or anyone listening to this message online, that if they have never trusted in Christ as Savior, that is the issue. It is not our goodness. We can never be good enough. It is not our religiosity. We can never uh, have enough religion. That is not the issue. The issue is we are born spiritually dead, and because of sin, and Christ paid the penalty for sin, so that by simply trusting in his death and his death alone, we can have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we have studied today. May it shape our thinking and transform our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.